Hi, and welcome to PodCash, the portable professional development podcast from Cash. My name is Dawn, and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni, the fastest growing professional network of current and future care and education practitioners. You can join us for free at cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists, careers advisors, access to job vacancies, and our member benefits scheme. And we're really lucky this week to have a special episode, which is part of a four part series recorded at Wellfest, um, which was a wellness festival for learning practitioners put together by West Yorkshire learning providers and supported by Cash Alumni back in the early summer. WYLP are a regional network established to support and advocate all providers and colleges in the further education and skills sector. In addition, providing a unique provider support service to support providers on their journey to outstanding. In this episode, we hear from Mark and from Amanda about their experiences as part of the LGBT community. They spoke about this at Wellfest and we've got those recordings for you now. Take it away, Mark. So I just wanted to give you a bit of context in terms of where I'm coming from and how I came to be setting up the campaign and also about me as a person and the struggles I've faced with my own sexuality over the past few years. So probably if I just to give you a bit of a potted history about where I've been and what I've been up to for the past 30 odd years and then I'll give you an idea of where we are in terms of the Just Being Me campaign and how it all fits together. I actually... Um, I'm an open gay man now um, and have been for the past 30, 30 odd years. Um, at the age of 11, I realised that actually I was gay. I was really struggling trying to understand at 11 what was happening to me. And I guess for me, that was the same thing all the way through secondary school. I really did struggle in trying to identify who I was and you know what my sexuality really was. And it never really changed at all. You know, I, I carried on struggling, thinking, you know, am I gay? Am I bisexual? Do I just need to pull myself together and wake up and smell the coffee and find myself a girlfriend and everything would be all right? So I spent lots of years agonising about who I was and what I would be in the long term. Um, and when I started secondary school, I was fortunate that I actually met uh, my best friend called Aid, and he was actually struggling at the time with his own sexuality. He was unsure whether he was gay or not. Um, so we spent a lot of our secondary school years thinking how we're going to handle this. So we are actually going to just put it to bed and try and just follow, you know, the normal path, have girlfriends and, you know, play the normal good son and try not to show that we have any sort of different sexuality along the way. And that's what we chose to do for quite a number of years. Although it wasn't helped by a couple of our teachers in the, in the school who obviously guessed that we were a bit different to the rest of the pupils in the school and certainly our PE teacher used to call us the pair of buffs on quite a regular occasion. Now obviously in this current day and age they wouldn't be allowed to get away with it. Get away with it now, you know, that there would be an outrage if ever that was said to a child in school. But at the time when we were going through secondary school education, you know, that was something that was said to people and you moved on and you accepted it because there was no way that you, you could go anywhere with it really. So, you know, for those times for those years that we were at secondary at secondary school, we had quite a rough deal from some of the teachers that we came into contact with. But my friend and my you know, aid my friend and myself, you know, we made the pact going through secondary school that we would try and, you know, need lead a normal path, if there is anything like that now, just to find a girlfriend and carry on and just pretend that, you know, we were into girls and everything would be all right. If we kept compressed, 
you know, keep putting our sexuality once to one side, hopefully it will get better and go away. And unfortunately it didn't. And, you know, by the time we'd left secondary school, we'd had girlfriends and, you know, we played around with, you know, having girls who were supposed to be our girlfriends, but really it didn't work in the long run. And we knew at the back of our minds that it was never going to all work. But, you know, we thought long and hard about it. And we had numerous conversations over those years about what we would do if we did tell our mum and dad and we weren't accepted by our, you know, our siblings and what would happen, how would we handle it? Neither of us really got to the point where we came to any sort of conclusion. So we carried on. We left school, got full-time jobs, both of us, um, and still followed the pathway of having um, girlfriends and pretending that we're heterosexual for quite a long time. And I think, you know, that actually carried on until we were up to the age of around 21. Um, and I'd actually got to the stage where I thought I've got to do something about this and I was actually with a girl at the time very much in love with her and I still am but you know I, I openly say if she, she came back into my life and need me, needed me to help her I would because you know there was always that relationship there all at the back of my mind I knew ultimately I was gay but you know I, I still had that fondness and you know I did love her you know, for the person that she was. Um, and I came very close to getting married at one point, but, you know, and I'll explain in a few minutes why that didn't happen. But, you know, one of the darkest parts of my life is when I reached 21. I'd actually been away for the weekend to stay with Ada, his girlfriend at the time. And we'd had a fantastic weekend. And I came back on the Monday, went to work as normal. And then I got a phone call on the Monday afternoon to say Ada had actually hung himself. Uh, and his girlfriend had come home from work, and it still, still gets to me now. Um, she come, she come home from work and found him in the house, and he drunk himself. Um, and that weekend I'd spent with him previously, there, there was no signs of that ever going to happen. You know, we were as happy as we had been in all the, the years that we've been together. Um, and obviously, it, it left a note to say that he just couldn't go on it any longer and couldn't accept what he was. Um, so for me, it was probably the darkest period of my life at that stage. Um, and then I turned to drink for quite a lot, of, quite a lot of weeks after that. And I, at one point, I thought, now it's my time to go. So I made a failed attempt at suicide, a bottle of nondescript pills and a bottle of brandy. And I woke up probably a day later in the bathroom with no clothes on, wondering how I got there. Um, and at that point, I just thought, enough is enough now. I've got to make an attempt or decide where I'm going to go because this is just getting ridiculous. It wasn't fair on my family and it certainly wasn't fair on me. So I made that decision at that point that I had to be, I had to come clean, if you like, tell people who I really was. So, you know, the first point of call was my mum, who was probably, you know, other than I, my best friend. Um, so I made a point of telling her and she was fine about it. You know, she was quite accepting and everything was fine. And at that point, I'd actually got to the stage where we were actually arranging my wedding to the girl that I'd met. Um, so obviously that opened another can of worms for me in the fact that not only did I have to tell my parents and my brothers, but I also had to tell my girlfriend that it wasn't going to happen. Um, so I got the support of my mum, fortunately, and, you know, we sat around the table and sorted all of that process out. And my girlfriend at the time, she was very understanding and for whatever reason, I don't know why, <laughs> she said that she hadn't got a clue that, 
you know, I was gay. I've never shown any signs at that time. So I must have done a really good job of keeping it quiet for quite a long time. But, you know, that's by the by. We put that to one side. The, the wedding was all cancelled and everything was put to bed. Um, and then obviously I told my mum and my dad and they were fine about it. And then I had to obviously tell my brothers. And I had two brothers at the time. Um, and the, the one brother was fine. He was totally accepting of it. And then my younger brother just didn't want to know, um, just totally disowned me, wouldn't talk to me, um, just didn't want to know basically and kept switching off every time I tried to contact him or speak to him, didn't want to know and basically just disowned me. Um, and then three years later, unfortunately, he died suddenly and I didn't get the chance to make amends with him. And you know, it's still one of those things that I have to carry with me now in the fact that we never got round to a situation where we put things right. And, you know, although I tried to listen the reasons why he wasn't accepted of me and my sexuality, he just didn't want to know, he didn't want to talk about it. He hadn't even spoken to my other brother about it. He just totally switched off and for whatever reason decided that I just wasn't in the family anymore. So you can imagine that was really, really difficult for a very long time. And I still carry that with me today. So hence the reason why, you know, we, we're now in a situation where we've got the Just Being Me campaign, because obviously I've been through an, an awful lot of turmoil in my life. And I know certainly I've been spoken to people out there at this moment in time, there's still people in the same sort of situation. And the reason why the LGBT um, Just Being Me came campaign came about is I actually went to speak at a local county council around about 12 months ago and it was fortunate at that um, conference that there was quite a lot of carers and workers there there who actually did identify as LGBT along with commissioners on the day um, and at the end of the presentation I had quite a few people came that came up to me and just said you know I think there's a need for a qualification of some sort but what do we include in it? So obviously we had to have a starting point. So after that session, I got quite a few emails and calls from people who said, we'd be willing to come on board and join the group and support you as best we could. And it was fortunate at the time that we had quite a lot of commissioners there as well. And they were really keen to actually promote it from their point of view, because obviously they had an HR responsibility to everybody that they employed in the council. And having spoken to a couple of people who I knew really well on the day, they said they'd had awful problems in terms of people making complaints, people being uh, victimised, being di discriminated against. And I know certainly, you know, when I took the, the leap of faith to come out of work, um, three people that I used to work with very closely refused to work with me, one on religious grounds and two fellas who were just homophobic full stop and did, just didn't want to work with me. And at that time when I was working in my job, I got to the a point where instead of them dealing with the issues that these people had and trying to make that right and make the situation better, I was actually promoted to another post. So I was taken out of that situation and if you like sidelined to another post where I wouldn't have to have responsibility for managing staff or actually having the day-to-day -day contact with people I'd be, be very much out in the field 
meeting people that ordinarily I wouldn't have that much contact with on a day-to-day basis. Now, if it was to happen, obviously I would challenge it and make sure that, you know, things were put right. You know, I would either deal with it myself or go to an HR department. But at that time, it was very, very difficult to try and, you know, work your way around that. And there was lots of discrimination and misunderstanding at the time. So, you know, I was conscious having been approached by the commissioners and people who were employed by the council i just thought there is a need for this and i'm sure you know you guys will be fully aware that you know people say lgbt awareness and understanding is getting better it is good in some places and some people have fantastic training and learning programs in place in other areas of the country it's really really poor and sometimes it's just a tick box exercise to say that we've ticked a box to make sure that we're inclusive and we have an lgbt understanding process for workers that we employ or for students that we teach and really you know we need to have to be in a situation where people have confidence and feel safe to be able to come out and be who they are. You know, I was saying at a conference last week that I was speaking that, you know, we've got the pandemic of COVID at the moment. If we could just have a pandemic of, you know, acceptance and understanding, then it would be a lot better. You know, I could rip up these qualifications. We wouldn't need things like Black Lives Matters. You know, everybody would be singing from the same hymn sheet and being accepting of people, regardless of who they are and how they are identified. But I think we've got a long way to go before we achieve that. So as I say, you know, I went away and thought hard and long about how do we develop these qualifications and who did we get involved? So, you know, I got the commissioners on board. They got quite a few people from the county council who were actually doing the day-to-day work, either in social care or they were working in admin or they were working in other roles within the council. And I got those guys on board. And then I put a a LinkedIn message out asking for people to join the group who were actually interested from a range of organisations. And to say I was inundated was, you know, unbelievable. I mean, I, I, you know, I had probably three, upwards of 300 messages from people saying, yeah, we're really keen not to come on board. We're really keen to support this and we want to get involved. Um, and we actually had the official launch just before we went into lockdown. Now, from my point of view, you know, I was, part of me was really happy that we had a standardised approach to training nationally and we also had a qualification that recognises people's contribution to that but also the other part of me thought why do we need to have a qualification just to make sure that people are, are being supportive of others in the workplace why do we have to have a qualification to make people accepting of others of how they might identify you know whether it's a sexuality or whatever whether it's their uh, gender identity. But unfortunately, it is what it is. You know, we're now in a situation where we've got a qualification that is regulated and now has a set of learning outcomes which are actually to a national recognised standard and people are actually assessed against them. There's lots of apprentices out there at this moment in time who might be struggling with their own sexuality and identity. So what we've done is actually made sure that at World Skills we actually make people available to talk about Just Being Me campaign and to support those apprentices that want to find out more about the LGBT movement and certainly you know they might be struggling with their own identity and sexuality and want to talk to somebody that's been in a sort similar sort of situation situation I was fortunate last year in the fact that I was one of the judges for the health and social care world skills apprenticeship so that we're going through so I had an opportunity then to talk to a lot of apprentices who you know knew about 
just been me via the LinkedIn messages that I've put out and came and spoke to me about the campaign and about the qualification and what it meant for them. And, and we're getting a lot of buying from other Pride events across the country. So the intention will be when we get back to some sort of normality that we'll actually have um, just being me stands at those Pride events so people can get to speak to people who have been in similar sort of situations if they're struggling with their identity or sexuality. So that's where we are, that's where we're at with the qualifications at the moment. We've just recently done the level two certificate in LGBT inclusivity in health and social care. And again, this came about because there was lots of health and social care organisations out there. And certainly the NHS was one that approached us to say we're now getting more and more LGBT people coming into social care and into health and some of our staff really don't understand how we can support them and we need to make sure that we get that support right for them so again we thought long and hard about what we needed to include around things like data collection of people who might have transitioned because again some people's medical records show their previous gender and they're not combined so that causes people for causes problems for people going forward for medical treatment. There's also issues around people at end of life because ordinarily people would have their next of kin or their immediate family that would be involved at the end of life package and it doesn't always mean that somebody who is LGBT wants their next of kin or blood family to be involved in that support process because as I said earlier it might be the case that they've been rejected by their immediate family or by the next of kin because of the way that they've identified and they have may have chosen to have a different family to support them through end of life so it was all about those sorts of topics that people really need some information about and certainly you know there was conversations about people with a learning disability not actually being recognised for the fact that they could have a different gender identity. They could actually want to be sexually active with the same sex partner, but they weren't allowed to do that because people assumed because they got a learning disability, that didn't happen. You know, we shouldn't allow it to happen. And why shouldn't we allow it? You know, if somebody wants to have a same sex partner, or if somebody wants to transition, even if they've got a learning disability, does it really matter? They should be given the support to be able to you know make that decision for themselves and there was lots of talk about people with dementia as well and their ability to actually choose the sort of service that they wanted because obviously you know if you take for example somebody who might have transitioned and changed gender you know part of their dementia might be the fact that they could look into a mirror on any given day and see themselves as previously being a man or a woman but now they're actually faced with a different gender and a different identity. And the fact that sometimes they don't actually understand what's actually happened to them. And all of those issues and all of those, you know, misunderstandings and issues it causes for those people going through the, you know, the dementia, the pro dementia process. And certainly one of the things that, you know, stood out for me, and you know, I've been open and honest at all the conferences I've, I've spoken at, you know, I was really, really ill in 2010 um was diagnosed with a life limiting illness um and i at the time was very very ill and really didn't care what sort of treatment i got i was just hoping that somebody would sort me out as quickly as possible but i never forget that you know when i went off to see the um the first oncologist that i saw he was a professor of oncology and assumed because i was a gay man that all the symptoms i was showing for my particular illness was down to the fact that I was probably HIV and he insisted twice that I had 
had an HIV test and I was very clear with him at the time you know I'd been in a stable long-term relationship I'd actually had you know protective sex with not only my current partner but also with my previous partners including the women that I'd had a girl as girlfriends and I knew hand on heart I was not HIV positive but he was insistent because I was a gay man at that time that I had to have that HIV test so twice he made me go through that process before in the end they realised that I actually got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and it had nothing to do with HIV so you know that was actually on my medical records and every time I went for a blood test after that to the oncology department people put disposable gloves on whereas ordinarily all of the people in the lobotomy department were putting gloves on for anybody else so for me I stood out like a sore thumb I mean you know infection control now dictates everybody follows the same sort of process but at the time when I was really ill that wasn't the case so you know I was disadvantaged in a lot of ways because of the way I chose to identify now I must say you know I'm in remission I'm doing extremely well and every time I go now for my checkup at the hospital and see you know the oncology people they're fine with me and you know it, we've come on leaps and bounds but I still have the conversations with them when I go to the hospitals about the sort of issues that you know people are facing there's still a lot of misunderstanding and ignorance and certainly a lot of discrimination out there at the moment and I don't think you know being fair to workers out there I don't think a lot of the time it is about the fact that they've just been discriminatory or that you know they've been exclusive it's about sometimes the lack of understanding and it's the fear that they're not going to get it right and I think some of them just think it's better if we don't say anything and we just carry on the best we can and hope it'll all go better at some point but you know it's not going to get better unless people make the effort and people start talking to one another and I know certainly having conversations with you know people over the past 12 months you know certainly since um just being me campaigns come to the fore there is still a lot of ignorance and misunderstanding out there and certainly in some of the school settings you know some kids are really struggling with their own gender identity and their own sexuality and not being fully supported by the schools and by fe for whatever reason so you know i was conscious that you know i, I was questioning my sexuality at the age of 11 and i guess there's still a lot of people out there currently who are in that same sort of situation and there will be people who are also questioning their gender identity at that age and you know with with no blame on any of the head teachers or teachers in schools we do need to provide them with the tools to be able to support those children and young people effectively unless we you know put the knowledge out there and we get that knowledge and understanding out there we're still going to be in the same sort of situation as we are currently where people are not being fully supported it's from september of this year relationship education becomes compulsory for primary school children from September and relationship education and LGBT education becomes mandatory for secondary age children from September and already you know conversations I've had with people on LinkedIn and with Twitter and people that I've met at conferences some people are very anti children having access to that knowledge and understanding because they're just saying you know it's not appropriate at that age level you need to leave kids alone and just let kids be kids well that's all fine and dandy but you might have a son or daughter who's actually struggling with their sexual with their sexuality or identity at this moment in time and i think you know 
HR departments have always had a real struggle in the way that they handle LGBT issues because obviously they have set policies and procedures. And yes, you know, they do mention the LGBT process in them, but unless somebody actually brings it to the fore and they actually raise a grievance or they raise an issue about it, I just think it's in a policy and there it is. It sits on the shelf, jobs are good and we've ticked a box and that's it. We know that we've got something in place if ever we need to deal with it. And it shouldn't be about that. You know, they need to be more proactive as opposed to reactive. And if we can try and make sure that we've got some sort of support mechanism in place to help them through that process, then we've achieved something by doing that. So that has been amazing. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for being so honest and kind of um, pure with, with what you what you shared with Um Kelly has now set Amanda. We'll move on to our next speaker, who is Amanda McKay. Kelly has set you as, as a presenter, Amanda. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, I shall make a start. So I'm Amanda McKay. I'm uh, currently the quality director for Balfour Beatty's Major Projects. Um, I, really, this is about a, a personal story, really, about me, my transition, what it's like to be a trans woman in the workplace. Um, it's something that, for me, you know, I, I transitioned late in life, um, something that a lot of people really didn't think that, really didn't understand why I'd done that, why I didn't come out earlier in life. And I think, for me, it was a, something I just needed to do. Um, so, and if any of you have ever been over to West Cumbria, it's a little enclave um, tucked away on the west coast of Cumbria, um, which in some places is the land that time forgot. And coming out in Cumbria uh, would have been almost impossible. I moved up to Scotland um, prior to transition, and I, tra I currently live in Glasgow, although I, my, my ex-partner still lives in Cumbria and I still visit Cumbria on a regular basis with work and I disappeared from Sellafield as I moved to a new job and about five years later I reappeared as Amanda which was quite a shock for quite a number of the people that I'd known uh, in and around Sellafield so uh, we'll make a start a lot of people that I've worked with my, my family my friends have fully accepted that once they realized um, why, you know, why I needed to transition, why it was good for me, more importantly, um, why I sort of, um, I'm going to put this, it's something that's been there all my life. So at a very, very early age, around the age of seven, I knew that there was something that was different. And, you know, I, I was born in 1963, uh, as a child at the age of seven, you know, in the early 70s. I didn't even know what transgender was or what gender dysphoria was or you know nobody ever talked about this you wouldn't read about it you wouldn't see it on the television so I just felt it was me um, I chose the name Amanda at the age of eight and the reason I chose the name Amanda most of my friends at that age uh, my parents lived well we, we lived in Middlesbrough in the northeast and all the friends in my local area were all girls and so I chose a girl's name to fit in with everybody else. I played with girls' toys. Um, that just seemed quite normal to me. And when I, we moved out to a village in North Yorkshire, uh, when I was about seven and a half, eight, and uh, that all changed. My girls' toys were taken off me, 
uh, and the village, all my new friends were all boys. And that was a really strange sensation for me because I'd not grown up with having male friends. And I really struggled with that. But you get used to things, and at that age, you believe that your, you know, your your parents are doing the right thing. And um, you know, I got on with it. One of the reasons, if you, you know, you can see up behind me, I'm an avid model maker, and I used to have a very large model railway. And these were boys' hobbies, or seen as boys' hobbies. And um, having those hobbies was really therapeutic for me. It's something that I've done all of my life, um, and it gives me that attention to detail and the ability to. Um, I suppose my uh, my doctor described it as mindfulness, being able to to move away from thoughts of the around you into something that's more productive and uh, but certainly very very positive. So <clears throat> I struggled throughout my with my gender identity throughout my teenage years, um, and particularly at university, uh, that was quite traumatic for me in in some respects. And at the age of twenty two, uh, I was. Working in London for a short period, I, I actually went to the Charing Cross Gender Clinic, um, by which time I'd managed to acquire some books on what on gender identity. Um, particularly at university, we had a really good LGBT network, of which I wasn't part of, but I asked advice from my colleagues who were in the, in the network, and they pointed me to some very good uh, reference material in our library. And it really sort of was an eye-opener to me to realise that there actually was a condition that fitted how I felt. Um, I never really progressed the um, diagnosis I had at the age of 22 because I really didn't know what I would do with it and transitioning in 1985 would probably have been uh, not a pleasant experience. There was no Equality Act, there was no Gender Recognition Act, there was very little legislation in place and the vast majority of trans people I came across at that point were all working in the sex industry and that didn't fit with me. I was an engineer, um, a university I studied mine engineering, um, I was a, a National Coal Board uh, graduate who unfortunately entered the coal industry in 1984 which uh, wasn't a good time to be um, joining the coal industry in the midst of the miners strike. So I moved into more mainstream civil engineering as we'll talk about in a little while. My coping strategy in dealing with this diagnosis was I sought jobs and activities which were very male orientated and kept me very busy. So I had a, a really great time. I was a TA officer for 15 years and I was with um, the police as a special constable for um, 22 years as well. So I had only 33 years of uniform voluntary service and it was something that for me was really important at keeping my thoughts and my gender identity at bay. Throughout my working life and up to the time that I transitioned, I really had some severe issues around gender dysphoria and depression. Um, I had a really successful life as a male um, in my, my working career. Um, I rose to um, a senior level when, within the organisations that I worked for. I thoroughly enjoyed the job I did. I had a very varied career doing so many different things and traveling the world with my work. I sought counseling in my late 40s because I really got to the stage where I couldn't suppress this anymore. And it was really difficult. And at the age of 48, I had an ongoing 
issue with a, uh, a heart condition and blood pressure and they were struggling to deal with it. And my doctor looked back into my medical history um, because my both my parents have been with the military for a period of time. A lot of my medical treatment had been carried out by the military who kept really good records. And I had, a, I had surgery when I was 21 um, for my appendix. And that was carried out in the military hospital Catrick. What I didn't know at the time is that I'd also had um, a hysterectomy. I was born intersex and I was born with a, a female reproductive system which struggled to survive in, you know, your body really isn't designed to cater for two systems. And uh, my male system, testosterone, is a very powerful hormone and it somewhat put pain to my female system. <clears throat> and so I'd actually had a hysterectomy, but nobody told me. And it was from the medical notes, the surgical notes, it was deemed that I possibly wouldn't be able to cope with that. And so I was never told. And I finally found out at the age of 48 that I'd been born intersex. And it was really the thing, the kick that said to me, this transition was meant to be. So I transitioned at the age of 49. So transitioning at work was really strange. I was um, head of quality for um, Scottish and Southern Energy's major projects division. We built wind farms, hydro schemes, power lines, offshore wind. Um, and I was head of quality for this 2.8 billion pound a year capital program. And when I came out, it was, I, I genuinely thought that my career would end. My organization didn't have a diversity program. It didn't even have an equality policy, believe it or not. Um, there was certainly no LGBT network in that organization, but they were really good and worked with me really well. Uh, and HR uh, had me put a plan together um, they really didn't understand a lot of this, so I had to provide them with reference material. And I ended up actually running trans awareness for our own HR team before I transitioned. So they could have an understanding of what I was planning to do and what that meant. Um, a lot of my fears and worries about my first day at work, which was a really scary thing, uh, walking through the door as Amanda rather than Martin, and somebody that my colleagues had known for two and a half years was was very difficult. But I had a really good reception at work. Um, I had no issues around um, my gender identity, no issues around uh, my transition. People were using my new name from the start. Um, my email address had been changed. There was no link back to Martin at all. And from that, my confidence grew. And I think one of the, the issues I see with a lot of people transition, confidence is everything. You must be confident and you must transition in your head before you physically transition. Because if you're not confident in yourself, it will be very difficult. My job um, continued uh, as it had before. Um, I traveled all over Europe and the United States and to China, visiting our supply chain. Um, and as a as a client, um, that, that can be quite an interesting experience. And I had regular reviews with HR and my managers to ensure everything was going as planned. And it, it really felt after a while I was able to stop that because I didn't need it anymore. I didn't need the support. Um, I felt confident enough to carry on. And it was a really good learning curve for both myself and for the organization, which now has had several other trans employees come out. 
um, and all of this without trans policies in place. But a policy doesn't necessarily make the, th the right things happen. And I think that's a, a, something I've learned throughout my life in the job that I do. I think I've never had any comments uh, made to me. And I know I look after a lot of trans people. I've mentored trans people um, within Glasgow. And a lot of people are put off coming into construction or into engineering because they feel it's a very male-dominated and very prejudiced and conservative sector. Um, whilst it used to be, and uh, I'll make no bones about it, you know, they're, they're on a learning curve. They're willing to learn. We have a skill shortage. We need to attract the best and brightest talent. Um, we have a program around neurodiversity. But we have a lot of people on the autism spectrum who are absolutely fantastic at engineering. You know, it's for us. It's about having the best people, and we have to look at all of our all the talent pools that we can find, rather than just taking from the traditional, what I would call male, pale, and stale. One of the things I have come across recently, and um, I normally test the market every couple of years and test my CV and make sure that I'm still marketable as an individual. And I've started to find that there's an element of um, prejudice out there. So I've been sending my CV out and with my new name on it as Amanda and finding I wasn't getting a great deal of response. And a friend of mine suggested to me, why don't you send it? 10 CVs out in your name and 10 CVs out in your old name. So I did. So the 10 CVs went out, identical CV, just a different name at the top. And they went to the same employers, all for uh, jobs that I was suitably qualified for. So I wasn't looking for things that were out of my skill set or my experience. My old name, Martin, got 10 responses at 10 CVs with seven offers of interview. Amanda got six responses with two offers of interview. Identical CVs, identical experience. So I think for me, uh, there is still an element of prejudice out there, not just for the trans community, but for the female population in an engineering environment as well. So there's still a long way to go. One of the reasons I joined Balfabeti is that they actually had an LGBT network and there weren't that many organisations that did at that time. That was back in 2014 when I was looking. So having worked in construction for most of my life, uh, I did have some angst about moving into a senior role as a trans woman in a mainstream contractor. Um, but some, as with many things, perception is not necessarily reality and I was very well received. And now there are many engineering construction related LGBT groups. I'm on the executive committee of a group called Building Equality, which is an industry-wide LGBT network of organizations where we're currently actually running a load of virtual pride events at the moment. So now LGBT is quite mainstream in construction. And as I said before, we have a skill shortage and we need to attract the brightest and the best talent regardless of gender, sexuality, race, or any other protective marking and characteristic, we want the best people. And so some of the organizations that I work with, both directly through my day job, but also um, 
<coughs> from a, an, an LGBT perspective. So there's the Fairness, Inclusion and Respect campaign, which is part of the Supply Chain Sustainability School in Construction. Uh, there's the Inspiring Change um, program, which is part of the Civil Engineering Contractors Association. Um, there's groups like Building Equality and Offsite and Interengineering, who are all um, LGBT in engineering um, groups. And finally, the Royal Academy of Engineering has a, a, done a large study on equality, diversity and inclusion, and particularly LGBT inclusion um, within the engineering and uh, technology sectors. So there's a lot of work going on around that to highlight the fact that um, these sectors welcome people from the LGBT plus community. So for me, despite some of the setbacks in looking for a new job at the time in, in 2014, I did find that some employers and agencies were very receptive uh, and who were enlightened enough to look at the person and the capability rather than looking at the wrapper. Um, and one of the things I would say is that you know, being, uh, being trans at work is as it should be, nothing exceptional and very normal, and that's certainly been my experience. I know that isn't the experience for all trans women, and I know from the, the people that I work with up here in Glasgow, um, some of them have suffered really badly, and I think that's, you know, I've helped them to either move jobs, because sometimes they work for an employer that's not going to change, or we've worked with the employer to try and change that perception. Um, transition for me has actually increased my confidence. <coughs> One of the things I had as a male was I was constantly hiding my trans uh, feelings, my gender dysphoria, the, the way that I felt. That was something that holds me back, or living a double life, uh, one at work and one at home. Um, I wouldn't have been speaking to you like this um, seven, eight years ago. I didn't like public speaking at all. Um, the only public speaking I actually done was reading the riot act as a police officer to a large group of people. So for me, it's been um, certainly uplifting. It's changed my life, um, being able to be myself and be my authentic self at work. So for me, I've not only had a, my working life, I've also had an awful lot of time as a volunteer. As I mentioned earlier, I spent my early years of volunteering in policing and in the military. Um, that The military I thoroughly enjoyed. I, I joined my local territorial army unit in North Allerton at the age of 17, literally the day after my birthday, I went knocking on the door. Um, I, I stayed for 15 years um, into the mid after the Cold War um, when things got really quiet and that's one of the reasons I moved to policing. Um, thoroughly enjoyed my time with that. It gave me a lot of life skills and I encouraged lots of people um, to get involved with volunteering, not necessarily with the uniform services and the military, but with many other things. And most of my team at work are volunteers in some capacity. I now spend most of my time both with my professional body and with the um, LGBT community. So I'm a National Trans Police Association rep for Scotland, and I sit on uh, Police Scotland's LGBT network, work with British Transport Police and a number of LGBT charities, as well as building equality. And one of the things I wanted to highlight with this is that transition can be very difficult on your mental health. And it has had taken a toll on mine over the years. And for me, um, I am a mental health first aider at work. Um, I like to give back when I've, I've received help. 
and I think it's really important to recognise that many trans people do struggle through transition and mental health can deteriorate but with suitable help it can it will get better and it does you know people come back to be themselves to be very productive members of the community and of their workplace um so a few reflections um one of the things for me you can't deny your past it's part of what shapes you and who you are um i work with a lot of people in the trans community who um because of their gender dysphoria do deny their past and i can fully understand that because they want to forget about their male side or their female side. Um, for me, it's part of my life and it still is part of my life. And I have to, you know, it shapes me. I wouldn't be in a senior role in an engineering organization if I didn't have that past. Um, another point was I had realistic expectations of what transition could achieve and actually found they were exceeded. You know, I, I'm currently 57. Um, I didn't have an expectation that surgery or hormones or anything else would turn me into what I'll class as what some of my male colleagues define as a stereotypical woman. So I had realistic expectations. And transition is not a set process. I, I, I'm a project manager. I like I project manage my transition and realised that it failed. My program, my plan, my baseline was shot to pieces by the first time I went to the gender clinic and they told me it doesn't work like that. So, you know, there are many different pathways to transition and they're all personal and unique to the individual. No one person goes through exactly the same route. And being a supportive employer is not just about being legally compliant. You know, my employer goes beyond the legal minimum and I would expect other employees to as well. The legal requirements through Equality Act, Gender Recognition Act and all of the other bits of legislation that support us are the bare minimum. Um, they're not the baseline. They should be the baseline should be starting beyond that. That's been great. Thank you for sharing your story, Amanda. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, no, that was great. Yeah, it was. I just want to thank both um, Amanda and Mark for joining us um, today. Both really interesting and um, you know really open presentations and i thank you so much for being so open um, with us and sharing your story thanks to alex and west york and providers for hosting this episode and thanks to you at home we hope you enjoyed this episode of podcast don't forget for more great content tailored to everyone in the care and education sectors you can join our membership network cashalumni.org.uk it's free to join and you'll get access to articles from subject specialists careers advice job vacancies and our member benefit scheme. WYLP offer a range of membership options to suit all, so if you'd like further information on how they can support you, you can head over to their website www.wylp.org.uk for more information. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of Podcast, please get in touch with us through the contact details on the Cash Alumni website. Until next time, take care.